0: Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team of Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we do tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors too.
1: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Alan Collins and I'm joined today by my colleague Sam Barker. Hello. Thanks Sam. And today we're going to be talking about sexual abuse in schools, which is very topical because there's been a whole series of cases in the last week or so about school teachers being successfully prosecuted for sexual abusing
0: school pupils. I'll I'll say there that one of them was a school priest as well, and he, he was abusing borders within the school.
1: Well, there we go. We always think that these cases are from the past, but they're not. Uh, extraordinarily, we're still seeing cases of children in schools being sexually abused. It's all unbelievable and beyond all comprehension, but it's happening. So we thought mm. we'd talk about that today.
0: Yeah, it's funny you should say that, actually, because two of the cases are in the 1970s, whereas... The third one, the, the one in Portsmouth, that, that uh, the offences occurred between 2006 and 2012. So very much looking at a recent case here. Yeah, that's the case of
1: Sean Aldridge. He was a teacher at Warblington School in Avon, Hampshire, which I actually went to that school once to give a talk. So, you know, you see the names come up and you think, screw So Aldridge, according to the newspaper reports, media reports, was a teacher at Warburton School and he sexually abused, as I'm saying, a number of girls. a number of girls at, at the school between 2006 and 2012 on the school premises and apparently in his class as well.
0: And, and one, as it transpired, became pregnant, and that pregnancy was terminated. And additionally, one of them, or, or if not more, one of them was a virgin at the time of the offence. So we're talking about extremely, extremely serious offending here you know, if you can increase the gravity of this kind of offending, but that kind of that kind of conduct is just quite unbelievable, I think.
1: Well Aldridge must have been a heck of a risk taker because it looks as like though he just knew that if one of the girls spoke out he'd be rumbled and that would be the end of everything for him, and I think I read somewhere, but he was actually married at the time, and, correct? Correct, yeah. And his wife might have been expecting
0: or something or like other. It was—it's quite out there that what he was doing, because not only in addition to that, he he had complete understanding, it seems, of his own offending, because he said to one of the girls in the course of committing the act of sexual abuse, "I could go to jail for this." So he had a complete appreciation of what he was doing at the time, and that it was wrong, and that it could end up with him going to prison. And still, he persisted. So,
1: strength, what was going through this man's mind at the time? One can only speculate, but obviously, he was a risk taker. He obviously had this urge for sex with underage girls. So, a really, really troubled individual, to put it politely.
0: I'm going to throw something else in the mix there, Alan, that is quite unbelievable, and that was that he was the school safeguarding lead. Yeah, and
1: again, there's something in the media about. Apparently, uh, there was concern about him in the past. Yet, in spite of that concern, he was made the school's safeguarding lead. You just think, well, what planet some of these people
0: on? Yeah, and that'll feed into a bit of the law that we talk about later on with non-delegable duties of care and also circumstances in which the school can be liable for the acts of employees. But before we do that, let's talk about quickly the other two cases. One was in Essex, a former teacher – who's a freelance teacher, actually – Kenneth Francis, he was found guilty of 15 counts of indecent assault and two counts of gross indecency, whilst a teacher at this boarding school in Essex. Again, rather... Well, disgustingly, I would say he would abuse the, the kids under the school sta- the, the stage at the school where they would perform and uh, following the sexual abuse, he would give them gold stars for you know what occurred, so really linking it in there with his role as a teacher.
1: Well, this Kenneth Francis guy, he apparently was um, a teacher also in Jersey, but I haven't heard anything about him getting up to no good there. But ironically, we've got new instructions this week in respect of another teacher in jersey a teacher called baker who is already in prison for sexually abusing pupils in jersey and this is a another one of these victims who's who's come forward again abuse going back some years not a, a recent case like um this sean Aldrich going
0: and did in that case was is the person who got in contact with you were they from jersey no he is
1: in the uk but he went
0: to school in Jersey, where he was sexually abused by kind of a uh, this chap, Bacon. Okay, well, and then the third case, as I, I mentioned very briefly at the start, as a school priest, his name is Father Michael Higginbottom. He went. He was a priest at Saint Joseph's College in Lancashire, and was has been jailed for eighteen years. So a huge sentence for sexually abusing two boarders in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. There wasn't that much information in the news articles about the circumstances of those offend that offending, but. Obviously, being Borders and him being the school priest, there was a lot of access that he was able to have.
1: Yeah, I have not across in Joseph's College before, unlike the School, obviously, you know, actually went there gave a tour many, many years ago about um, what it's like to be a lawyer, ironically. God, um, there you go. And, uh, yeah, and, um, you know, Kenneth Francis, again, you know, that's a strikes call called because he was a teacher from Jersey at some stage.
0: So, there's uh, links with some of these cases to your experience in the past. Um, I would, St. Joseph's College in Lancashire is actually closed down now, just as inside. aside. Oh,
1: okay, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm going. But anyway, yeah. You know, we've seen see a lot of cases where at boarding schools, you've got religious boarding schools or oh, boarding schools with a religious setting. Priests work as priests, but also as teachers as well. Yeah. So, you get this crossover. Um, and which is. From a child's perspective, quite powerful because the priest is sort of put on a pedestal, but and he's also a teacher at the same time. You know, it's an individual who's very much so much power in the child's life. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I guess speaking about the legal aspects of these kind of cases, mentioning boarding masters, there—that's really from from which all the a lot of these vicarious liability cases came from. The genesis of them was in relation to you know that try to draw that line where you can. I mean, you can create vicarious liability between uh, for the school for the acts of a teacher a lot of that has been developed through boarding school cases because there was such a close connection between a boarding master at the school running the boarding house etc these Australian cases and uh, you know obviously that, that led to vicarious liability for the, that offending that's where some so many of the close connection cases came from Well, that's right you know
1: these child abuse cases have been at the cutting edge of developments in the law so that we have vicarious liability as we understand it in 2019. Were it not for those cases, then a law would probably be quite different to
0: what it is now. Yeah, actually, I just again, out of interest, a lot of the Australian and English case law in respect of vicarious liability kind of went along in tandem for a while there. And then there was a recent boarding master case called Prince Alfred College in Australia, which went all the way up to the High Court, which is uh, slightly departed from the tests that we implement here in the UK. But Enough of that. What we'll do is talk a bit more about the law later on, but let's talk about what happened in these criminal trials and what the sentencing judges said. There was a real similarity between all the cases in sentencing in that the judge rightly said that the abuse of trust in these cases are of the highest degree. And, of course, those judges don't know what each other were saying in the sentencing, but they all arrived at the same conclusion, and that's not surprising.
1: Well, that's right because there's common themes, you know, the child is in the care of the teacher teacher a prominent individual in the child's life and the teacher has enormous power over the uh, pupil. And of course, it's understandable why pupils often look up to their teachers. There's a sort of bond they might not appreciate at the time, but if you think about your own school days, there's teachers that you like, teachers that you respected, teachers that you didn't respect so much, maybe teachers that you actually disliked. But... If you think about all of that, that just demonstrates how a kind of bond develops. and 99.9% of the time everything's fine, of course, but that position that the teacher enjoys does give them the opportunity to abuse the power, which is what Sean Aldridge did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also there's so much vulnerability in these cases that is on both sides of the children and the parents. You have parents dropping off. You know, the most important—the most important thing in their lives—a lot yeah. of the time—at the school gates every day, and then they're leaving them there. They're leaving them in the care of the school of the teachers. They want these people to step into their shoes yeah. as the parent. Real vulnerability there on the part of the parents to drop off the children, and they then they again, trust the yeah, they're
1: trusting the teachers, they're trusting the school to look after their the
0: children during the school day. I was about to say prized possession, but I guess, you know, you can't say yeah, prized possession with yeah, children. Yeah. We'll, we'll know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, as really what you were saying before, Alan, that of course the children in that position, there's so much trust. And, and a part of that trust, a subset of it is vulnerability, and a special kind of vulnerability that – I think in later cases where you really do see silence that arises out of the teacher telling the student, you won't be believed, you'll be punished for this, and the student of course believes the teacher, and why wouldn't they? They're put in this position of power, and that's to be expected.
1: Exactly, which leads up to another point where you're talking about the vulnerability. I've seen many cases where pupils have been abused by their teachers at school, and when you go to the background of the children, there may have been a vulnerability there already, which the teacher seems to have been able to have exploited. Mm. And they seem that, you know, sex offenders, paedophiles, whatever you want to call them, seem to have this knack of detecting vulnerability in certain children and being able to exploit it. Yeah. So again, you can see why judges impose really tough sentences mm. on these offenders because they really have exploited that position of trust and exploited that power that they have over those um, individual children.
0: Yeah, there's real craftiness a lot of the time with these offenders to, one, try to get around any kind of, I guess, gaps in the law, but also to exploit any kind of vulnerability that exists. So that's, I guess that's why yeah. the most robust measures have to be taken to protect yeah. these kids. Yeah, you know, the
1: sex offender isn't going to go and try and abuse a pupil, but he or she knows it's going to immediately run off the head teacher or go and tell parents mm-hmm. or whatever. They, you know they seem to want to exploit those who are, they, they think are not going to immediately
0: run off and make a complaint. Or, or take the course that Aldridge did, which was to groom all four of the girls for a long time before it occurred. And so then by the time it happens, in the mind of, of the the girls, it's more, yeah, I guess they don't consider it straight away as being a criminal act. Like they've been groomed. Well, it's so, a bit like that. And
1: now, Case, but we dealt with in a podcast um, a while back, which was the teenage schoolboy being by a female teacher. You get this bizarre situation where it all seems to be consensual, but of course, actually, it isn't consensual. It's again, it's uh, exploiting vulnerabilities, vulnerability, exploiting a power that a teacher has over somebody, and it's often not readily appreciated, is it? Because the Emma case. Showed that there was a sizable portion of the public who thought that there wasn't anything wrong with a teenage boy having sex with his female teacher. That was quite a striking storyline. Yeah, development there. Yeah, uh, you know, because when you do actually analyze what's going on, you do have exploitation. You know, the lad was groomed. I know it's a story, but it was a good um, authentic story, I think. The lad was being groomed and then sexually exploited by the teacher.
0: Absolutely. And it shows there the kind of vulnerabilities that exist. And the vulnerabilities in particular is what has led to developments in the law to try and ensure that, I guess, one, the students are protected, but two, there's some sort of accountability for wrongdoing.
1: Well, that's right. And there's the criminal accountability and then there's the civil accountability. So, the victims or survivors, if you prefer, in the various cases that we're talking about, would all be entitled to be compensated by the school authorities for the damage that they've invariably suffered as a result of what happened. Whether they know they're in time to be compensated or not is another question because. We were discussing more the other day saying the fact that many people who are gatekeepers, so to speak, whether it's police officers or, or and support workers, don't understand or appreciate that victims of sexual abuse very often are entitled to be compensated for the considerable damage that they've been suffered. Some might be referred off to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority and might get something there, but that's usually a fraction of what the victims
0: are actually entitled to. Indeed, well the laws developed for these kind of cases in particular and we've seen you know and everybody would know that a teacher or a school owes a student a duty of care but they might not understand that in recent years it's been confirmed by the Supreme Court that that duty of care is actually of a higher degree which is called a non-delegable a non-delegable duty of care which means that you just a school can't contract out or delegate so to speak its responsibilities, they need to satisfy themselves that reasonable care will be taken by any independent contractor in the performance of their duties. And in that kind of circumstance, we could take, let's take the example of this freelance teacher, Franklin, sorry, Francis, you know, freelance teacher could be considered an independent contractor. I don't know exactly, but let's say they are, he was. Then in the performance of giving school lessons, giving music lessons, the school would need to satisfy itself that this freelance teacher was doing all the right things, and you would hope that he'd been vetted?
1: You would, have, you would hope so, but even so, given that that particular case goes back to the 1970s when the safeguarding would have been very different, it's my opinion that the owners of the school would be vicariously liable vicarious de- anyway because they would have been controlling what Kenneth Francis was doing at the school. But even if that wasn't the case then I think you're quite right, Sam, in saying that they'd be liable anyway because they can't simply delegate Mm. their responsibilities such as teaching children to some third party who have no responsibility for
0: it. Yeah, so analysing these cases in the state as as the law is right now and, of course, with the caveat that we're not giving any kind of legal advice here about those cases, we're just speculating and looking at the facts as we know them. Certainly I'd say that in mostly all of those cases, the school would be vicariously liable. In the Francis case, as you were saying, Alan, the school's obviously trusted to this music teacher, a field of activities. And and, and as a natural consequence of him being a music teacher, that is teaching music. And the fact that he abused these children underneath the school stage, and in fact, gave them kind of ostensibly rewards, gold stars, things like that, afterwards, shows that he used the position of trust he was given in teaching, giving music lessons, and he abused that position of trust by committing the abuse. And so we could see a clear case of vicarious liability. Yes, yeah, it a,
1: is a, a rather sadly typical case. And yeah, so the owners of the school, in my opinion, would be liable to pay compensation for the terrible harm that Bryce has no doubt inflicted upon his
0: victims. Yeah, I guess the the message that we get out from from this podcast is certainly that in any context where there's been sexual abuse, sorry, not in any context, where there's been sexual abuse in any kind of educational context, there may may well be a civil liability and people should seek legal advice in respect of that. Indeed, they should, and we're hoping,
1: aren't we, with work that we're doing that police officers and support workers and people who are effectively gatekeepers will start to appreciate that the victims of sexual abuse do have civil rights.
0: And that the CICA is not necessarily fit for purpose. We must remember that we've got cases with the CICA where our clients have, been, have suffered enormous abuse and have had such serious consequences to their life. Their life has been derailed entirely. But from as a consequence of that derailment where they've committed a minor offence themselves, they have been precluded from any kind of compensation. And that's true of all CICA cases. So Yeah, indeed, CICA is in my experience in these of cases that we're
1: talking about. It's not the way to go. You know, if victims want to be properly compensated, which is their legal right, because that's, that's what the law says, they really should be pursuing civil cases and not uh, depending on a payment under the CICA scheme, yeah, which we- is probably in the vast majority of cases to be ina- inadequate.
0: Yeah, or we'll preclude them entirely. So, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening uh, to our podcast today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, anything like that, please get in touch with us on the email address that is listed on our show notes, and we'll be back shortly with another podcast. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you would like to speak to Alan or I about something you have heard this week, or even if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please do get in touch at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.